Since we discontinued our lessons due to the Pascha holidays, I need to remind you that before the break, we were at the 12th chapter of the book of the Revelation, and there the Holy Evangelist sees two signs in heaven. The first sign considered and described as great was the woman encircled by the sun or clothed by the sun, and the moon beneath her feet, and upon her head a garland of twelve stars. And being with child, she was crying out from the intensity of the birth pains, and she was in agony. She was agonizing to give birth. But another sign appeared in heaven, a red dragon, fiery and great, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon the seven heads, seven diadems, or seven crowns. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So we find ourselves at the point where the dragon raised his tail towards heaven and he draws one-third of the stars of the heaven, throwing these stars down towards the earth, the ones that could be reached by the length of his tail. St. Andrew writes regarding this point, and I quote, This, we think, is brought up for two possible reasons either because during the first fall from heaven he drew with him those angels who accepted his arrogant view to reach theosis, to become gods all by themselves, and thus they fell on earth as dark beings, as dark angels or demons, or as a second possibility he draws with his tail the third of the stars of the heaven being the unstable and short-rooted Christians. Because to be a Christian, it means to be a star. And as a star, a Christian is in the firmament of heaven. He's in the firmament of the church. However, when we are ungrounded, when the devil stretches his tail, then he will throw us down. Sadly enough, my friends, we must bring up this unfortunate aforementioned reality because the devil pulls down a great number of Christians. And if we take into account that even though this is a schematic number, the third of the stars, however, it is a significant number showing that those that fall from the influence of Satan are quite numerous. Consequently, if we keep these things in mind that the devil is deceiving the globe and he's pulling the faithful down from the firmament of the church, then we must understand that we cannot be careful enough. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. This entire verse expresses the readiness and anticipation of the devil to tear into pieces anyone that might attempt to grab his authority, 
that he feels he has upon the earth. Again, before we continue, we need to mention that many times I read and quote from the writings of the fathers in the ancient Greek tongue, which is not very difficult, of course, and I keep doing this knowing in advance that repeating and quoting these verses in ancient Greek may be displeasing to some of you. It is tiresome and even bothersome. We do interpret in modern Greek, but I do this on purpose. I do this, my friends, so you can rest assured that we use the opinions of our church and we don't proceed to do this work on our own initiative. Not to mention that this area of Holy Scripture, the book of the Revelation, can be very slippery and we need to proceed with a great deal of caution. So please try to be patient uh, with this analysis from the ancient Greek to the modern Greek for the aforementioned reason. About the woman who was ready to give birth, it shows since the woman is the Theotokos in the one view, being that on the other view it happens to be the church, it shows that the devil always remembered what God said in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, that a descendant of Eve would crush his head. Since then, the devil was observing the birth of every male child, and if this child had those characteristics with which he would become the demon's opponent. Do you find this interesting that the devil was actually observing the birth of every male child? This is also practiced by the Jews today. You'll find this interesting as well. I have read this in one of their periodicals. The name of this periodical is Chronicles, a Jewish publication printed in Athens. I read an article in this magazine stating that the practicing Jews pay close attention to each male child born thinking that this could be the prospective Messiah. Naturally, every mother is especially happy when the newborn happens to be a boy, always having that inner hope that this child may be the Messiah. Unfortunately, and most tragically, as we know, this child which will be the Messiah for them will be the Antichrist. So as the Jews today watch every newborn, uh, especially every newborn boy, very closely, uh, they watch his characteristics, the intelligence level, etc. In the same manner, the devil was observing every male newborn child in the New Testament. This is why, as we mentioned last time, and I will repeat it again for you, St. Ignatius of Antioch writes, the virginity of the Theotokos and her birth were concealed. They went unnoticed by the prince of this age. This escaped his attention. He did not become aware of either her conception nor her birth. This is quite impressive from an initial point of view. It seems that the Theotokos received a command not to announce this to anyone. The devil is not everywhere and certainly not all-knowing. It seems that this absolute secrecy of the Virgin was practiced to the point where she even kept this from Joseph. For this reason, Joseph was suspicious of foul play. He was suspicious of a third-party involvement. 
he succumbed to the idea or to the uh, temptation of Mary's infidelity. And even though she was aware of his suspicions, she did not defend herself. She chose silence. It seems that her reasons was that mandate of secrecy. However, the devil became perceptive of the holiness of, of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. He became aware this scene of the Archangel Gabriel and his Annunciation to the Theotokos was concealed from him. Likewise, the conception of the Logos in the womb of the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, was also concealed for him. It escaped him, as Saint Ignatius of Antioch says. However, her overall holiness was not easy to conceal, especially when he was seeing a very unusual holiness during her pregnancy. And I remind you of the curiosity of the devil and how he dealt with Job's holiness. And you do remember what the devil conveyed to God about Job. Likewise, here, when he realized that this especially holy maiden was carrying a child, he did not waste much time. He rushed to introduce thoughts of suspicion to Joseph to make an example of her. In essence, he wanted to influence Joseph to report, to announce to the community of the village that his fiancée, his betrothed virgin, because they were not married as of yet, the holy evangelist Matthew is very overt on this when he says, before they came together. And of course, after this, she always stayed a virgin. She is the ever virgin. But Joseph was deeply troubled about this, and the devil planted the suspicion that perhaps his betrothed bride was untrue to him. This is the first attempt of the devil to stand against the woman. So the, the dragon stood in front of the woman. He stands in front of the pregnant Virgin Mary. Of course, he does not know that she's a virgin. This escaped him, as we said. However, he stands, he lurks, he's awfully curious and watchful but he does not know exactly what's going on. He can only see that things do not look so rosy for him. And this is the first phase of the devil who stood before the woman, as the book of the Revelation tells us here. He stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might grab her child the moment it was born. The second phase of this stance, this stance of the devil, is the atrocity of Herod, who stopped at nothing to kill Jesus at infancy. The devil saw the angels hymn and glorify God above the cave of the nativity. He saw the nearby shepherds to act likewise. He saw the wise men, and keep in mind that the Magi, or the wise men, had arrived when Jesus was about one year old, and immediately after their arrival and departure, Herod started his murderous action against all the infants of his eparchy. So the devil is behind Herod. 
when Herod plots against the life of the infant, it is the devil who stands to grab and devour this infant. He concluded that based on all these wondrous signs, this happens to be an extraordinary infant. He sees in this infant a formidable and an extraordinary opponent. The third phase of this stance of the devil is the personal attack that he finally undertakes against Jesus in the desert. He heard during Christ's baptism that you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in the desert, after he observes him closely for 40 days, here the evangelist clearly states that Jesus was led in a desert by the Holy Spirit and to be tempted by the devil. So the devil observes and does not intervene. The 40th day, when Jesus became extremely hungry, he ate nothing all those 40 days, then the devil appears and says to him, tell these stones to become loaves of bread, along with the other known temptations of greed and pride. And the fourth phase of the devil standing in front of Mary to grab her child was the death of her son on the cross. When the devil lifted Jesus upon the cross, and the fifth phase of this stance of the devil is every plot and every snare of Satan against the faithful, since this woman in this spectacle of the Holy Evangelist refers not only to the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, but also to the church. And this phrase is quite characteristic so that he might devour her child. Not simply eat, but devour. Compare the dragon. Compare to a large crocodile, because the dragon is somewhat similar to a very huge crocodile who lurks at the bank of the river, opening his huge jaws to grab and eat the newly born infant. Not to simply eat, but to devour this infant. To devour and not leave a trace behind. This shows the mania of the dragon for whatever belongs to God. All these very descriptive images serve as a wonderful uh, preparatory measure for the faithful. For the battle they are to undertake against the dragon, my friends. And they have been engaged in this battle against the dragon for centuries. And she brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. I explained to you during our previous gathering that the travailing and the distress of this pregnant woman does not refer to the historical Theotokos, but to the historical church. She brought forth a male son. The Greek says, and this is a superfluous figure of speech, a male son. Not a male child, but a male son. This is characteristic 
uh, of the Hebrew language as well, and it wants to emphasize that this child that was brought forth was definitely a son. Not to mention that the entire heavenly scene and vision by the holy seer John characterized as a great sign was being directed to this exact point, to the birth of this male child, of the male son. This is the central theme of this entire image, the birth of the male son. And what is the identity of this male son? He told us, and I already read it for you. First, his first characteristic is that he will rule the nations. And second, he will do this with a rod of iron, meaning that he will rule with power. These two positions, that he will rule all the nations and he will rule with a powerful hand are taken from the second psalm and they are purely Christological. Theologically, it has to do with the incarnation of the Son of God, the Logos becoming a human being. In essence, this translates to the historical birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But pay attention here. As the woman gave birth to the child, the child was immediately snatched up. Her child was pulled up unto God and to his throne. The verb snatched up to be snatched up shows a forceful separation from the earthly and mundane matters. In reality, this dynamic action corresponds to the equally audacious stand of the devil who is preparing to devour the child of this woman. And this being caught up or snatched up corresponds to the ascension of the Savior towards heaven and towards God and to the throne of God, in other words, to assume his throne to the right hand of God. We see here in this verse, in only one verse, we have two great and most significant events, the entrance of the Messiah inside history and the exit, the ascension of the Messiah from history. In essence, these are the two poles of the dramatic battle of Christ against Satan, where Christ won a triumphant victory, and with this victory of his upon the earth, he also pre-qualified the final victory of the church. In these two events of the nativity and the ascension, all the other events of the earthly life of the Lord are also included. Thus here, in one verse, in one single verse, we have the history of the historical Messiah and his work of salvation. And about being snatched up in heaven, this he did not only do to escape the dragon, but he needed to open the path for us. This is exactly what he told his disciples that after his departure from the earth, they would be saddened. But he said, this will be to your benefit, to your best interest, because if I don't depart, if I don't ascend, then the paraclete will not come. So I'm going to the Father, so I can send you the paraclete. What does this mean? He needs to open this path 
the Lord was saying these words during the 40 days uh, before his, his ascension, the 40 days between his resurrection and up until his ascension. It is to your best interest for me to leave. I will leave and the paraclete will come. The Almighty God, and how did uh, he open the path? The opening of the path is the assumption of the human flesh, or better yet, the human existence at the right hand of God the Father himself. In this manner, the path opened, the path that took man to heaven. And since man ascended to heaven, now God can descend upon the earth. The Holy Spirit came, and he will stay in the church throughout the ages. This is why he was snatched up in heaven. But please pay attention to the phrase snatched up, which shows that the devil suffered a series of defeats. And when Christ descended in Hades, there in Hades, the devil realized that the one he tried to capture was not a usual human being. He tried to grab to hold someone out of clay, but he proved to be of divine substance. He proved to be of divine essence. He was God, as we hear year after year in the wonderful Paschal Catechism of St. John the Chrysostom, the homily read towards the end of the Paschal Divine Liturgy. Let's listen how St. Andrew of Caesarea summarizes all these things that we've talked about. He has some outstanding points, and I quote, The apostate devil always stands across the church and prepares his weaponry, ready to devour all those whom the church gives rebirth to through baptism and the sacraments. My dear brothers and sisters, you often come to me and complain that from the moment you made a decision to begin a life of orthodox spirituality, you are at the receiving end of many temptations. Now, why, why does this surprise you? This is very natural. The Lord, after his baptism, he went out to the desert. He did not wait for the devil to come. He went out to meet the devil. Watch this detail. And this is like when we have two nations in a state of war. The adversary, who feels confident and self-assured of his superiority, sets out first to meet the opponent. In this fashion, Christ set out first to meet the devil. And then again, if you will, what are the desert fathers all about? What are the desert ascetics, those Christians, those Christian warriors who went to do battle with the devil and his demons? This is nothing but heroism. Well, as far as we are concerned, we do not set out to meet the devil. But he does not waste time. He comes to meet us because he's camped across the church. And when we, say, when we say church, we do not mean the temple, the building only. The church is the body of Christ, regardless now that the buildings are also included in this term church. The entire creation will become the church someday. So the devil stands across. 
He awaits on the opposite sidewalk. He stands by the curb and he watches. He sees how many entered the church. In essence, who were baptized? Who are taking Holy Communion? Who are living spiritually? He grinds his teeth. He sharpens them. And he's looking for the right moment to tear someone to pieces. That's why, my dear brothers, when you begin to follow a spiritual life and you see that all the demons are falling on you and all kinds of temptations, do not lose heart. This is an indication that you are on the right path. You've made a good beginning. The presence of temptations is proof that your struggle is genuine. At some point, a certain monk was relating to his elder that he hadn't felt any temptation, not a single temptation, not even a carnal temptation of any type, nothing at all. My child, this is not good. It seems that the devil has forgotten you. But it's extremely rare, if not impossible, for the man of grace to escape the visits of the devil. And the Holy Father, St. Andrew, continues, the church continually gives birth to Christ in the persons of the newly baptized, and now the church attempts to form Christ inside those who received this baptism. How does St. Paul phrase this? Let's listen again. He will use an image from the state of pregnancy. My little children, for whom I again travail until Christ should be formed in you. My children, I'm going through the pains of an expecting woman until Christ should be formed in you. As you can plainly see, a spiritual birth consists of spiritual pain. The church develops the faithful, and this is always the case until Christ is formed in the person. This is always the case until they reach unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The apostle talks about the stature of fullness of Christ and to the spiritual stature of Christ to become, and don't despair, to become Christ-like. And St. Andrew continues, the male son characterizes the people of the church who are immune to the carnal pleasures. This is so beautiful. Please pay close attention to this. Who is the male son, the male child? Initially, the historical Jesus, according to the initial view of the image of the woman Theotokos. But according to the second view of this image of the woman as the church, male sons are the children of the church the people of God, us. Do you grasp this? We also explained this during our previous meeting. This people of God, this male son, does not give in to the female pleasures. The Greek word is athilindos, meaning the opposite of someone female crazed, someone who dives into the pleasures of the flesh like a female crazed horse. So the people of the church are immune to the various carnal pleasures. They are people of self-control and obstinance. The person who knows to abstain, to hold himself back from the sinful pleasures of this world. 
This is a beautiful phrase in ancient Greek, and I will quote it for you. Arin de ios otis ecclesias laos getes idones athilindos. In a historical Jesus, this snatching up of the child of the woman was fulfilled in his ascension. But what about us? How do we become snatched or pulled away as the male people of God? This takes place, my friends, when heaven snatches away the faithful who struggle against the devil, when they depart from this present life. If you want to see how they are snatched up and why, please read chapters 2, 3, and 4 of the Old Testament book, Wisdom of Solomon. And you will see it very plainly there, how the people of faith become the object of ridicule, persecution, abuse from those of a different mindset and the Godfighters. And the faithful patiently endure through all this, and finally they leave. They leave this present life, they leave so they do not change. They were caught up so that evil might not change their understanding. So the sinful world does not overcome them, does not spoil them. And this because, please pay attention to this, man becomes tired. In a world of heavy temptation, man becomes worn out, he becomes tired. So God comes with his divine draft and he takes up his faithful from the church militant. He snatches them, he takes them out. Some by the way of an illness, others by martyrdom. God knows how to harvest his people. When he sees that they have matured in virtues, much like a vine dresser who goes to his vineyard every morning with a basket, and he sees which grapes are ripe, which figs are ripe, and he picks them. And the next day, he goes again and looks for new grapes, new figs to pick. In a similar fashion, the eternal and heavenly vine dresser enters his vineyard, and he gathers the ripe fruit. But something else on this snatching up, and I know that King James uses the word caught up, but the Greek is which literally it means to snatch something out of someone's hands. And St. Paul uses this verb to tell us that during the final judgment, the righteous, the saints, will be caught up in the clouds, according to Second Thessalonians, and after that which you are alive and remain shall be caught up together, snatched up together with them, who are still alive since we did not die, we did not taste death when Christ comes, along with the righteous who have died and will have resurrected, we will be caught up along with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is such a beautiful image, and as I said, you know, the Greek word is arpaisometha, a much stronger verb than caught up. And this verb is placed here to show that the saints do not have any relationship with the earthly matters. Their citizenship, their polity is in heaven. On earth will remain all those who will be condemned. We will be caught up, he says, in the clouds. Like the Lord on a light cloud, 
which is symbolic of the divine, the heavenly form. And we will be caught up, we will be snatched up when the Lord is descending, and this meeting will take place in midair. About this meeting near, only God knows how and where. We do not need to be overly concerned about the fine details. This suffices. That the righteous will be caught up to meet the Lord. Do you see how the entire Holy Scriptures agree with the book of the Revelation and with the interpretation of our church? Christ is caught up with his ascension, and we the faithful also, being the male child, will also be caught up as well. Yes, the child was snatched up, but the woman was not. She was not caught up. The woman gave birth, and her child left before the dragon had an opportunity to grab it. What is meant here is the life of Christ on earth. While the devil orchestrates the devouring of Jesus on the cross, he becomes ready to mutilate him, he stretches him on the cross, but he did not accomplish much there. The devil was rather mutilated by the cross of Christ. With his death, he defeated death and the devil. Because Christ, as a human being, showed his full obedience to the Father, and thus what Adam failed to do was successfully accomplished by Christ. But the woman, the Theotokos, remained behind. She remained in this present life. She did not leave with Christ. She did not ascend then. But the church also stayed in the world and continues to be in the world. Yes, but now will she not become the target of persecution from the dragon? Of course. And the woman fled out in the desert where she has a place pre prepared by God and there they will be nurturing her for 1260 days. They will feed her for 1260 days. So the woman left. After she gave birth, she left. She went into the desert. There she has a place prepared by God, and they will nurture her. This nurturing suggests the presence of angels. They will take care of her for 1260 days. The woman who flees in the desert, my friends, initially happens to be the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. How did she flee in the desert? When she was personally persecuted by Herod. She seeks refuge in Egypt, a deserted land in the area of Theogonosia. Egypt was deserted, dry, out of any true knowledge. So Egypt was deserted of Theognosia. It was deserted from any true knowledge about the true God. St. Anthemus of Jerusalem writes very beautifully on this, Behold, the Lord comes on a soft cloud, and the handcrafts of Egypt will crumble. Isaiah 19.1 So the Lord is coming, seated on a light and soft cloud, and he's coming to Egypt, and when the handcrafts, the false gods made by men's hands, the idols, when they saw him, they shook, fell, and crumbled. 
the similar position is mentioned in the salutation service, even though it has been borrowed by a pseudoscript. But please listen. The prophecy says the Lord went to Egypt, but this prophecy was inconceivable up until the incarnation. Now we understand it. He comes to Egypt and the idols fall and crumble. How does it come on a light cloud? What is this light cloud? The arms of the Virgin Mary, the birth giver of God, the Theotokos. Her arms hugging the Lord. She is the light cloud. Therefore, the Theotokos flees from the mania of Herod, and behind Herod is the dragon who pursues her. It is noteworthy that the mother of the Messiah, of Christ, the Theotokos, remains as a member of the church militant. And after the ascension of Christ, the Messiah who ascended to the heavens, the Theotokos remains on earth even though she is also in heaven. And I will explain this in a minute. And she is persecuted by the anti-godly powers. However, she is under divine protection. How does the Theotokos remain on earth? Let's listen how this takes place. She gave her body, her flesh, to Christ, which flesh the faithful partake of. And since the faithful commune the flesh of Christ, which is her flesh, for this reason, the Panagia, the Virgin Mary, remains in the world. And she's aligned and at the same time distinguished from the church militant. And someone can see this very well in the actual practice of the church, especially when we have an artoclasia service, literally meaning the breaking of the bread, or the blessing of the five loaves, and when the priest begins to use the censer to sense everyone and the loaves, then he chants this dismissal hymn, Virgin birth giver of God Theotokiparthene in Greek and why this hymn to the ever virgin for the reason that I've been talking to you about all along and in the dismissal hymn of the Dormition we chant during the birth of Christ you kept your virginity and after your Dormition you did not abandon the world or most holy birth giver of God. Now you may tell me this abandonment of the world could be ethical or allegorical in the sense that the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, protects the church from heaven, protects the world in an ethical sense through prayer, supports the church through her intercessions. Not so. Yes, of course she intercedes, but she stays here ontologically. She is in the church because the church itself is the body of her son who has her body. But if the birth giver of God, the Theotokos, is persecuted, then the faithful will per be persecuted also. The first fleeing of the church, the first fleeing of the Christians, took place a little before the siege of Jerusalem during 70 AD. Eusebius of Caesarea describes for us the following in the third book, in the fifth paragraph 
of the fifth chapter of his ecclesiastical history. The third book is very interesting, and you may be able to find it because this volume has been published very recently, and uh, I have not recorded the page, uh, but it is in the third book in the fifth chapter. Let's listen to the translation very carefully. It's very important. And I quote Eusebius of Caesarea, who states, Besides, the people of the church in Jerusalem were instructed through an oracle given by revelation to the seasoned men living there before the war to distance themselves from the city and to relocate in a city of Perea called Pelas. The believers of Christ relocated to the city since the holy men totally abandoned the royal Judaic metropolis, the city of Jerusalem, and the entire land of Judah. So the city of Pelas lied east of the Jordan River in the area of Arabia. But please pay attention because what Eusebius of Caesarea writes to us is very significant. Please open your ears to hear this well. Shortly before the war, and this was the war enacted by the Romans and more specifically by Vespasian against Jerusalem. In the meantime, Vespasian was nominated to be the next uh, ruler of Rome, the next emperor, and he left his son Titus to complete the siege against Jerusalem. Titus defeated and entered the city after the siege, and the fall of Jerusalem took horrific, dreadful, most dreadful proportions. According to some of the details described by Josephus, mothers actually ate their children. This is horrible. The Christians had totally abandoned the city. No Christian was found in the city during this siege. Here, of course, the Christians remember the words of the Lord on the first plane. When you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman armies, then know that the time of her desolation has drawn near. Then all those in Judea let them flee to the mountains. When he says the mountains, he refers to the desert. And all those inside of her, all those who are inside the city, exit the city. So the Christians remember the words of the Lord. When they saw the movement of the Roman armies encircled Jerusalem, they all left. And to make sure that you never forget this point, I will read it again. The people of the church were instructed through a vision, by a prophecy that is, given by revelation to the spiritual, spiritually seasoned men, to the elders, before the war, to distance themselves from the city. The prophetic gift has never been absent from the church. Consequently, we mentioned this at one of our previous lessons to answer some people's question. When these adverse conditions, these difficult times of the book of the Revelation are taking place, wouldn't the faithful suffer? 
the suffering will be minimal because God will be protecting them in a way that his wisdom knows. What is this way of God's protection? When, for example, a dreadful plague is about to commence, the faithful will be notified in a way not known to them at this moment. But at the proper time, the church will be informed and will be knowledgeable of that way. It will be revealed to the church at that opportune time. As the Roman attack was revealed to the faithful prophetically from the saints of the church, most likely the saintly priests and so on, it was revealed to them that the city would fall and they must leave. And they remember the words of the Lord. They left and they were saved. The important thing is that the entire Palestine came to seek refuge inside Jerusalem. The entire Judea. Josephus tells us that I don't know how accurate this number may be. I can't tell you for sure. But Josephus tells us that three million Hebrews entered the walls of the city to be saved. It seems like God was collecting all of the Jews who chose not to believe inside the walls to have them axed. While the Christians he led outside, he instructed them to exit the city to be saved. I will now tell you about something along these lines, something that happened during my service years it just now came to my mind. I was serving in the Air Force uh, at the time, and uh, I was at the base of Araxos in Peloponnesus. And in those years, it was not very possible to take a leave of absence, at least not until the affirmation. Today's soldiers are affirmed and sworn in very quickly, and they can exit the base. We were trapped inside the Araxos base for months and we hadn't come in contact with anyone, another human being, for months. At some point, the corporal enters the door of our cabin and says, who would like to go to the city of Patras? It was noontime, and we were all relaxing a bit on our beds, and we all jumped on our feet because we were all ready to go to Patras, anything to get out. Now, how would we get there? Certainly not on foot, we assumed that one of our trucks needed to go for bread provisions, for food provisions, something of that sort. But we all wished to get out of Araxos being such a desert. So we all jumped out of uh, bed very quickly, but I was the last one, being that my bed was at the end, the very end of the cabin. So I was the last one to make it through the door. And they all made it outside except me. When I went to exit, the corporal stretches his hand in front of the door to block me. And I remember complaining in my simplicity. I said, why can't I go to Patra? I also want to go to Patra. He tells me, listen, please listen to me. Go back to your bed. No, I want to go to Patra. He tells me, listen, go back in your bed. Do you hear? Instead of patas, all the others ended up scrubbing the toilets for the rest of the afternoon. I use this simple example. It just came to my mind to help you understand at this point. God knows to choose and preserve and protect his people in the face of an impending destruction. 
Thus, my friends, let's be watchful. Let's be aware. We don't know how God will be speaking to his church for the faithful to be saved. That's why I told you to keep your mind about you. So we don't succumb to some illusion or fantasy being that man easily becomes victimized by illusions and the devil is quick to take advantage of this human tendency, God forbid, but we'll stay vigilant and spiritually alert. We will stay alert and will be very attentive to the voice of the church at every moment for whatever the future may bring. So the desert from this point on will be the place of refuge for the Christians who are at the receiving end of all types of pressure, persecution, whether political or cultural. Cultural persecution, when the human civilization will have reached such measure of decadence to have someone come to the point to say, no, I can no longer remain among these people inside this type of world. This is how the desert of the early ascetics came to be. The church will seek refuge in the desert again, my friends. The desert was a necessity not only in the first centuries, but the church will seek refuge in the desert again in the last days, during the days of the Antichrist. The catacombs were utilized back then and they will be used again not to mention that they're already being used during our days in Orthodox lands, and this is uh, 1980. Today in Orthodox Russia, as we read in various periodicals, if the faithful wish to celebrate a divine liturgy, a liturgy in the true sense that would fulfill the needs of the faithful, they celebrate it in the forests and in the deserts. And if you would like to know how long one of these Russian divine liturgies last, they uphold the typicon or the format of the holy mountain. You will be horrified. 12 to 13 hours in the woods, in the cold. This is the meaning of heroism. The church has fled to the desert once again. Again, this information is common knowledge and it is written in newspapers, religious magazines, and periodicals. We read these things. That's where I read this information and I'm sharing it with you. For this reason, we need to start preparing ourselves because at some point we may be faced with such a possibility to seek refuge in remote and deserted areas. St. Andrew of Caesarea writes the following, what was happening with the martyrs, so it will be with the Antichrist. And this we saw during the Old Testament, when the faithful took refuge in the caves, in the mountains, and in the holes of the earth to avoid the wrath of the ancient types of the Antichrist. In the Old Testament, the Antichrist was at work because the Holy Cross was also at work. I have told you this in other lessons. The uncreated energy of the Holy Cross was at work in the Old Testament, and consequently the God-opposing powers of Satan or the devil were also at work. St. Paul writes about this very thing in the Epistle to the Hebrews that the saints 
and the faithful went and made their abode in the caves and in the holes of the earth to be saved, of whom the world is not worthy. Did you hear? The world is not worthy, my friends, and I'm saying this because, should I tell you? Yes, I might as well tell you. One of our today's psychiatrists expressed his views about monasticism to an unfortunate young man who made it to his door. Don't pay attention to what the monks do, he says, because they feed donkeys. They're good for feeding donkeys, according to this scientist. Very nice. Please forgive me for this insertion. But you see, this is what monks do. They might as well be feeding donkeys. Well, what can you say? I am bringing this up because St. Paul says that the world is not worthy of those who seek refuge to the deserts to preserve their orthodox mindset and their faith in Jesus Christ. And St. Andrew says, This may include the actual desert. Did you hear this? The actual desert. The real desert. Not the, not the desert in the spiritual sense where we can live a deserted lifestyle in our home, isolated, where our home becomes like the desert. He means the actual real desert. In one of his homilies, the theologian Mr. Sotiropoulos said this when he spoke about some of these topics of the book of the Revelation. I believe he told you this because he also mentioned it to me something to this, uh, mentioned to me something to this regard. Father Athanasius, when the time comes, we will head for the mountains and the deserts. Very true indeed. As St. Andrew says here, the actual desert. This may include the actual desert. And St. Anthemus of Jerusalem writes, Who will give me wings like a dove so I can fly away and find rest? Behold, I traveled a long distance running away. I made this desert my abode. This psalm, according to Anthemus of Jerusalem, prophesies the fleeing and the deliverance of the righteous from the snares of the devil and their isolation and their redemption and their freedom from worldly cares and their, they will be assisted with divine aid and divine protection. As you see, my friends, this is the journey of the faithful inside history. How do you like it? If we chose to be Christians, let's praise God's holy name, because on the other side of these sufferings, at the end of this road of distress, Christ is coming. The Lord said, After all these things that I told you, raise your heads towards heaven, and wait for your redemption. Wait for your redemption from there, because your redemption will take place from heaven. The world remains ignorant of the end of history. The faithful know it. They are certain of it. Not only that, 
but they sense the end galloping towards us, as Mr. Bratsiotis writes in his commentary very beautifully. Osipisti, all those who are faithful, let's enter this adventurous and cross-bearing journey of the Church.